So we'll be looking at 1 Corinthians 5, and before we read that chapter, which we'll read the whole chapter, we want to think about the distinction between Christians and non-Christians. And ever since the fall, the history of humanity has been one of a battle between the seed of Christ and the seed of Satan. And Jesus Christ is in the business of recruiting followers to his cause, the Christian cause, which will win the day. But Satan, though he is mortally wounded, wounded at the cross, defeated by Christ, he is still trying to muck up as much as he can, to destroy as much as he can, and there remains, therefore, a tension between the followers of Christ and the followers of Satan. And the church is on the forefront of this battle as it equips the saints to pull down satanic strongholds and defeat evil in the world. However, this mixture of good and evil is ubiquitous in our existence, in our experience, and it sometimes even occurs within the church itself. You can have evil arise to the point that a purging is necessary within the church. And this was the case in the church of Corinth, when the Apostle Paul addresses the issues of church discipline in excommunication in chapter 5. So turn there if you haven't to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. I'll have it on the screen here for those of you who don't have a Bible open in front of you, and I will read this chapter. It's 13 verses, uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 5. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, and such sexual immorality as is not even named among the Gentiles, that a man has his father's wife, and you are puffed up, and have not rather mourned, that he who has done this deed might be taken away from among you. For indeed, as absent in body, but present in spirit, for I indeed, as absent in body, but present in spirit, have already judged, as though I were present, him who has so done this deed. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, when you are gathered together with the power of our Lord Jesus Christ, deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of of the flesh, that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Your glorying is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Therefore, purge out the old leaven, that you may be a new lump, since you truly are unleavened. For indeed, Christ our Passover was sacrificed for us. Therefore, let us keep the feast not with old leaven, nor with the leaven of malice, and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote to you in my epistle not to keep company with sexually immoral people, yet I certainly did not mean with the sexually immoral people of this world, or with the covetous or extortioners or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. But now I have written to you not to keep company with anyone named a brother, who is sexually immoral, or covetous, or an idolater, or a reviler, or a drunkard, or an extortioner, not even to eat with such a person. For what have I to do with judging those who are those also who are outside? Do you not judge those who are inside? But those who are outside, God judges. Therefore, put away from yourselves the evil person." Put away from yourselves the evil person. Now the focus of this chapter is excommunication. 
the last step in church discipline when there is no repentance. The situation was this. Within the church at Corinth, there was a man who was living in outright and defiant sin. He was, in the words of Martin Luther, a callous and wicked person. And Paul's instruction to the church is that this man needs to be removed from the membership of the local church. Three verses within the chapter highlight this, verse 2, 7, and 13. Verse 2, you are puffed up and have not rather mourned that he who has done this deed might be taken away from among you. Verse 7, therefore purge out the old leaven that you may be a new lump since you truly are unleavened for indeed Christ our Passover was sacrificed for us. So again, purge out the old leaven, remove the old leaven, remove this person. And finally, and most poignantly, verse 13 But those who are outside, outside the church, God judges. Therefore, put away from yourselves the evil person. Put away from yourselves the evil person. Now, there's much that can be said about the specifics of church discipline, but today we want to focus on one of the essential elements of church discipline, and that is this, that church discipline is about making a distinction between followers of Jesus and followers of Satan. Now, this is the final message. Uh, There were some messages in between of a bit of a mini-series on the marks of a true church. During the Reformation, the Reformers were faced with the question of what is a true church? They had to determine whether or not the Church of Rome, for example, was a true church. Now, the mere fact that many believers were present in the Church of Rome was not enough to qualify it as a true church in their mind, nor was the mere fact that the Bible was present or read in the church Uh, sufficient either to qualify it as a true church. The reformers had to dig deeper in seeking to determine the marks of a true church. And as we ask the same question today, we would do well to learn from the reformers and consider what they thought was a true church. Now, I've spoken with a couple people um, outside this group uh, regarding the first mark of a true church being the pure doctrine of the gospel. And one of the arguments made against my position which was that a church which preaches and holds to a truly Arminian message is not preaching the true gospel and is therefore not a true church. One of the arguments against my position, that position, was that there are so many Christians in churches like that. And how can we say those aren't true churches? Now that may be true that there are many Christians there, but that's irrelevant to the question. There were many, 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 many Christians in the Church of Rome In fact, all the reformers were in the Church of Rome before they left it, but that didn't qualify it as a true church in the eyes of the reformers. So the issue that the reformers dealt with was what qualifies a church as a true church. And it wasn't the mere presence of believers or the Bible being read. They came up with three things, and in the previous messages we discussed what many of the reformers identified as Um, The first two marks of the church, and now we'll look at the third today. Specifically, I drew upon one of the oldest doctrinal standards, the Belgic Confession of 1561, which summarizes the three marks of a true church as this, and I quote now, The true church can be recognized if it has the following marks. Number one, the church engages in the pure preaching of the gospel. And we spoke about that and and the, the the gospel of God's grace. And to abandon that, I argued, is to abandon Uh, the first mark of a true church. Number two, it makes use of the pure administration of the sacraments as Christ instituted them. We spoke about baptism and the Lord's Supper. And number three, it practices church discipline for correcting faults. And so today we conclude 
with a consideration of this third and final mark of a true church, church discipline. Now, church discipline can be defined in its broad sense as the process of correcting sin in the life of the congregation and its members. That's a quote from Jonathan Lehman. But the more formal church discipline in view today is that which can lead to a church member being removed from membership. And that's what we see in the text of 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Now, we have to ask ourselves, why did the Apostle Paul see it as so important to remove someone from membership And why did the Reformers see church discipline as so important, so much so that they included it on a very short list of the marks of a true church? Again, one of the reasons church discipline is so important is because its proper application leads to a distinction between followers of Jesus and followers of Satan. Paul's instruction to the Corinthians in verses 2, 7, and 13 specifically show us that he wanted the church to make a distinction This wicked and callous man, as far as any human being can ascertain, was not following Jesus Christ, but was rather following Satan. Was rather following Satan. As the buttress of truth, one of the church's main responsibilities in the world is to teach the Christian worldview properly. The head of the church, the Lord Jesus Christ, taught that men either follow him, either follow Christ, or they follow Satan. And we can see that in John chapter 8. I won't turn there, but you can read that on your own time. So men and women, boys and girls, are either following Jesus Christ, or they are following, and I quote scripture here, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Ephesians 2.2. So there is no neutrality in God's world, and there can be no neutrality in the church. For the church to allow a follower of Satan to remain in the church would be to disregard the distinction that God has made between Christians and non-Christians. And so here's the point. The church is to be composed of followers of Jesus, not followers of Satan. This is what Paul has in mind in verse 7 where he says, Therefore purge out the old leaven that you may be a new lump, since you truly are unleavened. For indeed Christ our Passover was sacrifice for us. Paul is saying the church, the true church, is truly unleavened. The true church is pure. That is, it is made up of those who follow Jesus and have their sins forgiven. The church is to to be composed of Christians, those who depart from iniquity. Scripture tells us in 2 Timothy 2.19, Let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. Now the local church is is to seek to manifest that reality. The reality that the church is made up of believers. Therefore, in the course of time, if it becomes evident that a church member is not departing from iniquity, such a church member must be disciplined, and if there's no repentance, ultimately removed from the church, not only out of a love for him and a desire for him to repent, but also in order to maintain the church as the new lump, free from the old leaven of unregenerate Satan followers. Now, Paul's charge to the Corinthians to purge the evil person from among you is a charge to remove from the assembly those who are not following Christ. His reason for this was that Christ's sacrifice has led to the creation of a purified community of believers, the church. To allow a follower of Satan to remain in the assembly of followers of Jesus is to disregard Christ's sacrifice. It's to blur the distinction 
of Christians and non-Christians. And if we do that, we're disregarding one of Christ's great accomplishments in the atonement, which was to purchase a people for himself that is distinct from the world and Satan. So if we do not have this mechanism of church discipline, you have no way of making a distinction between followers of Jesus and followers of Satan. And that's one of the reasons Jesus came to die, was to gather for himself a people who follow him and don't follow Satan and the course of this world. Now, John Calvin gave three reasons for church discipline. Number one, that the good be not corrupted by the constant company of the wicked. Number two, that those overcome by shame for their baseness begin to repent. So in this first two, the first one is a concern for the believers in the church, those who are have not abandoned and, and destroyed their profession of faith and are walking in, in holiness as far as we can tell. Church discipline is for their protection. The second point, Calvin notes, is for the good of that person who's living in sin. For their own good, we desire that they would begin to repent of this sin. And the following reason is the one I've been highlighting now and will continue to focus on, and that's this. This is Calvin, that they who lead a filthy, filthy and infamous life may not be called Christians to the dishonor of God as if his holy church were a conspiracy of wicked and abandoned men. For since the church itself is the body of Christ, it cannot be corrupted by such foul and decaying members without some disgrace falling upon its head. And its head is the Lord Jesus Christ. So Calvin is saying this third reason, and I think they're all important, but this is the one I'm focusing on, is that if you allow a follower of Satan to remain in the church, you're allowing disgrace to fall upon Christ because his church is not to be made up of foul and decaying members, followers of Satan. Now, it is possible that a true Christian may be correctly excommunicated from the church due to grievous sin. However, such a person, being a true Christian, will repent and return to the fold in contrition and sorrow for his sin. And Calvin reminds us of this. Calvin is very good at being very strong and then seasoning that language with grace and that stance. And Calvin reminds us of that. When he says, it is therefore not our task to erase from the number of the elect those who have been expelled from the church or to despair as if they were already lost. It is lawful, however, he goes on, to regard them as estranged from the church and thus from Christ, but only for such time as they remain separated. So if they repent, they are to be welcomed back. And as long as they're living we still have hope that they might repent. But if they do not repent, and, and until that time comes, or they die, and they stand before their Maker, they are to be regarded as estranged from Christ, and therefore following the course of this world. So even though we don't give up all hope on that person, we still have to regard them as an unbeliever, as a follower of Satan. Now, it may often be the case that when a sinner comes back, and whether it was formal church discipline or sometimes just in the course of their life, when a sinner comes back, it may be that they repented for the first time. And church discipline may have been the means that God used to bring about their initial conversion. I believe that may often be the case. Now, the Reformers believe that maintaining the purity of the church was of such importance that to fail to do so would be to abandon the concept of the church altogether. And that's what we have to think about. Why was this a mark of a true church? If it's a mark of a true church, it means if you don't have this, 
then the church, you don't have a church because you cannot now identify it as a church. An assembly that preached the true gospel, administered the ordinances, but had no instrument to maintain a distinction from the world was no church at all. Now, with that being said, it is undeniable that the church is still going to be comprised of sinners. Even the most mature saint is not free from sin. In commenting on admission to the Lord's Supper, which in many ways is identical to admission to the church, Martin Luther noted that those who were not callous and wicked people should be admitted to the Lord's Supper and to church membership, even though otherwise they are feeble and full of infirmities. Now, what I want to do now, and again, this is an overview of the third mark of a true church, but this leads us to a final point I want to make, a point of application regarding what is the standard for which someone is excluded from the church and admitted to the church. What's the standard for someone being admitted to the church and excluded from the church? And as I said, there's much more that could be said about church discipline, and for the sake of time, I'm doing a bit of an introduction and why it's so important that the church maintain a distinction between followers of Christ and followers of Satan. So and we can get to that, some more of that, if we want to dig in during discussion time or afterwards. But what I want to do now is conclude with a bit of application here on the standard for membership to church. And I believe, and I'll try to make the case briefly, um, that that standard should be the same as being removed from membership of the church. So, what's the standard? There are at least two things we ought to note when considering this question of what is the standard for membership, which would be being admitted and being excluded. And two things I want to point out today are, number one, not all sins are equally heinous. And number two, Professors of Christ should be given the benefit of the doubt, and I'll explain those two points. Number one, let's consider that not all sins are equally heinous. Track with me here, because at first you might say that doesn't make sense. Isn't a sin a sin? And yes, but let me explain what I mean by that. And to do that, I want to borrow from the Westminster Larger Catechism. Westminster Larger Catechism asks this question, question 150, Are all transgressions of the law of God equally heinous in themselves, and in the sight of God. So the writers of the Westminster Confession, these Reformed men, asked themselves this question in the 1600s, and they answered it as followed: as follows. Answer, all transgressions of the law of God are not equally heinous, but some sins in themselves and by reason of several aggravations are more heinous in the sight of God than others. So they believe some sins in themselves and by reason of several aggravations are more heinous in the sight of God than others. Now, the next question in the Catechism gives a large list of what makes some sins more heinous than others. And I encourage you to read that list at your convenience. I'm not going to read the whole things, but I do want to cite part of it now to give you an idea of what they had in mind. Sins receive their aggravations from their nature and quality of the offense, from the nature and quality of the offense, if it be against the express letter of the law, break many commandments, contain in it many sins, if not only conceived in the heart, but break forth in words and actions, scandalize others, and admit of no reparation, if against means, mercies, judgments, light of nature, conviction of conscience, 
public or private admonition, censors of the church, civil punishments, and our prayers, purposes, promises, vows, covenants, and engagements to God or man, if done deliberately, willfully, presumptuously, impudently, boastingly, maliciously, frequently, obstinately, with delight, continuance, or relapsing after repentance. And the list goes on. You can read it. As I mentioned, I encourage you to. Some sins, they argued, are worse than others. Now, we even see this within 1 Corinthians. When Paul writes to the Corinthians, he rebukes them for their division and pride, but he does not call for the excommunication of those involved in the party spirit. I am of Paul, I am of Apollos. He rebukes them for their sin, but he doesn't call for their excommunication. However, of the man living in presumptuous sexual sin, he calls for his excommunication. He calls for him to be removed from the church. Now, the next question in the Catechism clarifies that every sin, and I would emphasize this, every sin, and I quote, even the least, they, they cite, deserves the wrath of God, if not repented of. All sins are evil, and all warrant God's wrath, but some are more evil than others. And Jesus affirmed this truth when he denounced the cities of his day, comparing them to Sodom. In Matthew chapter 11, when he said, And you, Capernaum, who are exalted to heaven, will be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works which were done and you have been done in Sodom have remained until this day, but I say to you it shall be more tolerable for the land of Sodom in the day of judgment than for you. So Jesus is saying Sodom was wrong in sin, but it's going to be more tolerable for them. Their judgment will be less severe. Certainly still wouldn't want to receive that judgment, but there's a, there's a, a gradation of sin and a gradation of, of punishment. So some sins are more heinous than others. That was the argument in the Catechism, and I believe that is correct. So when we consider church membership and church discipline, and I'll, I'll conclude with circling back around as I bring up the second point, some sins are more heinous than others. It is not for any sin that someone would be excommunicated from the church. Um, it's for heinous, aggravated sin that a person leaves the church with no choice but to say, this person is not following Jesus, but following Satan. So we'll circle back around. Let me address the second point, which was professors of Christ, professors of religion should be given the benefit of the doubt. This might be a controversial claim, but what I want to do is first look at the London Baptist Confession of Faith. And if I could find a standard, a standard for church membership within the Baptist Confession, it would be here. Chapters 26, paragraph 2 on the church, it says, All persons throughout the world professing the faith of the gospel and obedience unto God by Christ according unto it, not destroying their own profession by any errors averting the foundation or unholiness of conversation, are and may be called visible saints. And of such ought all particular congregations to be constituted. So Paul in Corinthians, opens his letter by identifying the saints as those who in every place call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And in the sermon I did on baptism, I spoke about this, and the problem with modern evangelicalism is not simply that we welcome too many people into the church, but rather that we preach a shallow gospel message that people are willing to enter the church without comprehending the message of sin, the message of repentance, really the message of divine grace as well, which humbles the pride of man. However, if we proclaim the biblical gospel as Peter and Paul did, 
then we ought not turn away those who make a profession of faith, even if they are still, in the words of Luther, feeble and full of infirmities. And he wasn't speaking of health, he's speaking of spirituality and, and spiritual character and, and maturity. So the London Baptist Confession here says, if you make your profession of faith, and you don't have any errors averting the foundation, which I would argue have to do with your doctrine, you don't believe in heresy, you believe in orthodox Christianity, and we'll get to as well the doctrines of grace in a moment, or unholiness of conversation, which isn't simply referring to conversation speaking. Conversation means your manner of life. Your manner of life, you're not destroying your profession by living a unholy, an unholy, wicked life. Wicked, a wicked and callous person, as Luther said, and as we have in 1 Corinthians 5, the man who was living an outright defiant, high-handed. I mean, look at that list from the Westminster Catechism there. It's willfully, presumptuous, impudently, boastingly. That, that was the type of sin that was occurring in 1 Corinthians 5. So the church, so membership to the church is to be extended to those who are professing Christ and not destroying their profession of faith, even though they are feeble and full of infirmities. The church is where they need to be in order to grow strong, to develop a Christian conscience, and to fight sin. That is where those people need to be. And unless someone destroys their own profession with grievous sin or heretical doctrine, they ought to be received as visible saints. And so that's what we have in view when we talk about excommunication. We're not excommunicating someone because they have an, an infirmity, they have, they're struggling with sin, we, they would be excommunicated because they have embraced sin as a way of life to the point that they can no longer be identified as a Christian, but rather as a follower of Satan. But if they have not destroyed that profession, they are to be received as visible saints, the confession says. Now, Tom Nettles, in his biography of Charles Spurgeon, identified three things that Spurgeon would look for when someone was considering entrance into the church. Three things, and I want to read those here. Number one, and, th and as we look at these, think about as well how these relate to um, excommunication. Number one is the clear evidence of dependence on Christ for salvation. This involved a clear and felt knowledge of sin and a deep sense of the necessity of the cross. You would not be admitted to the church if you didn't have that dependence on Christ. And if you neglect that... Once in the church, you would have to be removed from the church. Number two, does the candidate exhibit a noticeable change of character, including a desire for pleasing God and a desire for others to believe the gospel? And number three, is there some understanding of, with a submission to, the doctrines of grace? Now, in one sense, these are high standards. In fact, in keeping with the first mark of a true church, I agree that some understanding of and submission to the doctrines of grace ought to be a requirement for membership as those doctrines of grace are essential to the gospel. However, in another sense, these standards are simply asking the question, is this person a follower of Christ or a follower of Satan? Exit from the church via excommunication is not simply for sinning. If that were the case, every single one of us here and in every church should be excommunicated. Rather, it is for grievous, high-handed, unrepentant sin that marks someone as a follower of Satan. 
in like manner, requirements for entry to the church should not be higher or lower. It's my argument. They shouldn't be higher or lower than the requirements for excommunication. Church life is going to be messy because we are all sinners. And sometimes a follower of Satan enters into the church. And when that happens and it becomes manifest, the church must remove that person. Nevertheless, despite that reality that that can happen, the New Testament does not spend a lot of time talking about making it harder to enter the church. Now, if you're preaching the true gospel, then it is impossible for someone to enter the church without the grace of God changing their heart. And again, that's where I believe the focus should be on when we think about church membership. What is the message being preached? But there isn't, the New Testament, in my understanding, my reading of it, doesn't seek to make it harder than it already is to enter the church. But it does spend time discussing when someone ought to be removed from the church. And I believe that concurs with my analysis that not all sins are equally heinous, and we are to give professors of Christ the benefit of the doubt if they are not destroying their profession of faith. When it comes to church discipline, John Calvin noted that gentleness is required in the whole body of the church. There is to be mercy, patience, and forbearance. All right, We're not to expect everyone to have the same maturity level, but there is also the need to remove one who is destroying his or her profession of faith by living according to the laws of Satan rather than the laws of Christ. That is what is required in church discipline, and that is why the Reformers saw it as an essential mark of a true church that would make a distinction between those who are obeying the Lord Jesus Christ and those who are not, but are rather following their flesh, the world, and Satan. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for this time in your word to consider 1 Corinthians chapter 5. I pray that you would challenge us to consider these truths and allow us to discuss them amongst ourselves and pray we'd be edified by it. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Before you guys come up, I did want to allow um, for an opportunity, uh, if there's any questions.